All right, good morning, Village Church. Good morning. Uh, my name is Michael, and I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. I have the joy to open up God's Word with you today. I'm very excited. And today is what's called Vision Sunday. We have been doing this for about nine years now. And Vision Sunday is an opportunity for us to come in front of you to talk about the future. Uh, but it's also an opportunity for us to train the body of Christ in the mission that Jesus has given us. So uh, first what I want to do is I want to talk about maybe just a warning on the front end. And I, I want to share with you two words that I would call uh, every Christian and every church has a gravitational pull that is incredibly strong towards these two words. Uh, after I give you this warning, I'm going to talk about the future, and then we're going to talk about some equipping. Sound good? All right. Here are the two words. The first one is lulled. I can barely say the word. It's so ugly. Lulled. L-U-L-L-E-D. Lulled. Here's what that means. It's when, when the members of a church or Christians are easily lulled into a false reality that the primary mission of the church is their comfort and their happiness. Let me give you one of the chief ways that you know you're being lulled. Ready? Criticism. So like one of my uh, just passions is, is teaching. Obviously, I love corporate worship. And, and, um, but here's what happens sometimes when you start to see a lulled Christian. They start critiquing the person next to them. They critique the person on stage. They critique this. They critique that. You know? And there's something about a spirit of critique when it's the dominant thing, particularly in a place of corporate worship, that is an indicator that you are being lulled to sleep. Right Now, don't get me wrong. Are there some things worthy of criticism in a church? The answer is, yes. If I preach things that are unbiblical, should you be critical? The answer for those churches, yes. But there's a, there's a different kind of lulled spirit. The, there's a gravitational pull in us as, as a community, but also in each one of us individually, to just kind of say, did it make me happy? And if it didn't make me happy, if it didn't meet my preferences, then I'm going to start Critiquing, it's a, it's a good warning side and red flag to look for. Here's the second um, word, whether there is a gravitational pull toward this, and it's aimless or aimlessness. And here's what we say. The mission is forgotten, especially in light of conflict, preferences, and consumerism. Like the gravitational pull toward being lulled and aimless in every church always for the past 2,000 years, it is palpable. And just so you know, churches that are growing can experience these things in spades. And so one of, one of my desires is, is to get in front of us and just say, we need to resist these two things. We need to resist them individually. We need to resist them as a community. We need to do everything we can. Now, the warning isn't done yet. Uh, I want to share with you two uh, examples in the book of Revelation. And, and, and here's what we learn. FYI, Christian, Jesus is more than willing to shut down a church that is lulled and aimless. Let me show you this. In the book of Revelation chapter 2, uh, Jesus actually has a conversation with the church in Ephesus. He is evaluating them. He knows everything. He knows their high highs, their low lows, their habits, their patterns, their tendency. And I want you to remember this when he gives them this evaluation that every community is made up of individuals. So this is, this is a word from Jesus, not just to a community, but to every single individual. And here's what he says. He says, I have this against you. Anybody want to hear this from Jesus, by the way? 
I have this again. Uh, uh, that, you, that you've abandoned the love you had at first. I liked you way better when you were younger. You've grown lulled, aimless, cold. Ugh. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, catch this, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Here's what the lampstand represents. It represents the presence of Jesus Christ in that church. It represents that church's ability to shine forth the light of God. Let me just translate for you what Jesus is saying to the church in Ephesus. He says this, if you're going to continue in your aimlessness and your lulled, you might be really smart. You might have the best doctrine in the world. I want you to hear me. I will shut your church down. You might be growing. You might be seeing all this really neat stuff from an organizational level, right? But I will not hesitate to shut your church down. That's, that's real. Like, Jesus doesn't play games with the local church. And so one of our just high callings and privileges is to be intentional toward the mission that he has given the church in Scripture. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, he has a conversation with the church in Sardis. Here's what he says. He says, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive. So listen, Sardis, when people watch you, they're like, man, that place is lively. Like really cool things are happening there. And this is what he says. You're dead. You're dead. Wake up. Is it still possible for Sardis to wake up when Jesus is talking to them? Yes. Like second chances, third chances, fourth chances, fifth chances. Like Jesus fights for local churches if they are willing to wake up and repent. He says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. I get it. There's barely anything left. I get it. Everyone else is looking at you and they see life, but internally you know about the division and the strife and the worldliness, the lulledness, the aimlessness, the consumerism. Like, I know, you know, and you know that I know, even though they don't know. I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. So you're like, Pastor Michael, it's Vision Sunday. Why are you so negative? I'm like, that's, that's the only, it's a warning. Because the weight of being a part of a local church community is significant to Jesus. It's so significant that he has been willing to shut down church after church after church after church throughout history. And the church in Ephesus closed. Why? Because they didn't repent. So I say this not because I'm going to come up and tell you Village Church, you're dying. I don't actually have a rebuke for Village Church per se. Uh, What I want to do is open up the words. I want to talk about vision, talk about discipleship. But I do want you to just be in a place of self-reflection to understand Jesus takes the local church and your personal discipleship with utmost seriousness. And do you. And so as I say that, I want to set the context. In the same way he is also willing to shut down, he is also constantly willing to support and to resource and build up. What I love about even his rebukes is is here's what Jesus is like. He's like, is there anything I can do to help you? Can I give you more of the word? Can I give you my spirit? Can I, can I, 
heck, I'll be your church consultant. I'll come in and write you a letter telling you exactly what the issues are so that you have everything that you need to, to actually move in the right direction. I'm going to give you the ability to change, the power to change, the humility to change. Now you have to make that decision to change. Like what I love about Jesus is his posture. It's not primarily one of change or die. It's how can I help you because I'm going to be forced to shut this place down if you don't change. Can we just agree on something? Do any of you ever want Jesus to come into this church or into your home or into your life and say these kind of things? No, that's like my nightmare. That is like my worst nightmare. Like, I don't want that. And so one of the ways that we fight aimlessness and lulling is we regularly have to come back to the mission that Jesus gave the church, put it out and say, okay, are, are we on par here? Are we, are we on point? Are we moving in the direction? Or are we just like building self-help programs that make us feel better? You know what I mean? Like, are we doing the very things that the church is supposed to do? So um, Vision Sunday, again, serves two purposes. One is to talk about where we're going. The first part of this message will be about that. And here's what you should be doing. You should be evaluating our plans, our agendas, our goals. Uh, and you should be evaluating them through this rubric. Is this really pushing the mission that Jesus has given the church forward? Or are there ulterior motives and agendas? And those are fair questions. And again, the second reason is to train you, which will be that second half of this sermon. Now, first, we're going to do, we're going to talk about Village Church. You ready? Uh, if you're visiting with us and uh, you're just like, yeah, this isn't my home church. I'm just here for a Sunday. Consider this an opportunity just to kind of catch up to what's going on. But if you are a member or a regular attendee here at Village Church, um, you are family. And this stuff's going to be really important because over the next year, there are going to be a lot of significant changes in our community amongst each other. And we want to make sure that we are on the same page. Sound good? So if you need to take notes, do that. Here we go. The vision of the Village Church of, is very simple. Our goal is to build disciples and churches who go grow and overcome. This is taken out of Matthew 28, uh, the Great Commission, and we want to make sure that everything we're doing is lending itself toward this direction. So when Jesus had these 12 guys, they would go out and they would start multiple churches after churches after churches, and then their disciples would start churches. Do you know why Village Church exists? Because somebody started this church. And there are so many churches right now that are in the process of dying, and new churches are needed on a regular basis in every single city. Also, we need more churches that are preaching the gospel in Bartlett as well. And so here's what we find, that part of the Great Commission was not just to build individuals, but to build churches. And so if the Lord gives us that opportunity, we're going to walk down that path. And so as we look at the Village Church vision, we want everything in our ability, we want everything to move in this direction. So here's what I want to do. I want to talk about three big aspects of Village Church, our present, and our future. You guys ready? Number one, let's talk numbers and bottlenecks. So you should know uh, Village Church, on an average Sunday morning, has around uh, 600 regular attendees. We do count kids because kids matter. And so that is a part of what, uh, who is here on a Sunday morning. There are between eight and 900 people who call Village Church their home. They attend Village Church one to four times per month. Um, we have experienced uh, between 19 and 26% growth every year since 2010. In the last 10 months, it's been 30% alone. Here's what that means. So some of you, you think I love change. I think I've grown to love change because change has been like forced upon my life. 
Um, but things, if you're here long enough, change very consistently. And the reason they change consistently is because when new people walk through the doors of the church, we have the profound ability to hurt them or to love them well, to help them or to push them further away. And so some of the changes you see are organizational and they are structural so that every person who walks through the doors of our church, we have the ability to love and connect in a way that is truly helpful and life-giving and points them to Jesus. Now, one of the things I think we all need to be on the same page about is some context in Chicago. And so there are two big pieces of context that I think profoundly impact what Village Church and other churches are experiencing. And so here's the first piece of context. Um, major megachurches are crumbling and struggling and have had incredible disastrous things happen to them and they've done really, really hard things. And because of that, there are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of families and individuals who don't have a church home. And I don't know if you remember what it's like to not have a church home, but it is an excruciating experience. It's really, really hard. At the same time, we are finding smaller churches closing rapidly. Uh, What we're seeing, especially over the last five years, is multiple churches in the area closing their doors. And then one of the newer trends that's actually really encouraging is to watch new churches or new churches that have been planting begin to adopt some of the smaller churches that are closing. But the end result is the following. Thousands of people truly, genuinely jaded and hurt by their church experience, legitimately let down, wondering if they can trust again, and they don't have a church home. And I just need you to hear me on this. They're walking through our church doors. There are some Sundays we have 10, 12 first-time families without a church home just walk through our doors. And in case there's like a concern about a motivation here, Our motivation has never been like numbers. We've never sat in an elder meeting ever once and said, we want to grow big. Like that's, we want to grow small. We want to grow with intentionality if the Lord wants that. But at the end of the day, the Lord grows churches. Like that's up to him. That's just not ever been our obsession. But I do do want to say this. Every person who walks through the doors, we have a responsibility to love and to steward them well, even if and especially if they never come back. There are a there's a large amount of people who walk in once and they just, they're searching, this isn't the place for them and that's okay. But here's what I, here's what I know. Uh, I know that I want to, uh, together with you, love them very well and I want to help point them in the direction that Jesus wants them. And so this is part of our experience here in the Chicagoland area and we need to just be all aware of it, call it what it is and understand there's a lot of hurting people. And so we have this opportunity to love them well. You hear me at the end of my services, uh, at the end of the services, you hear me say, um, hey, there's some people um, sitting next to you. Uh, I haven't, there's a handful of people I've never seen. Would you say hello to them? Um, right now in this service, uh, I can already count off the top of my head 10 people I've never seen before in my entire life. I, it might be your first time. You might not be a Christian. You might be dragged here with a friend. You might be trying to find a home church. You might be from out of town. I don't know your story. I'm really glad you're here. And I hope today, I hope your presence here is encouraging Uh, I hope that you are loved well. You may not agree with everything I say. That's okay. Um, But I hope this community here um, helps in your healing and your searching for whatever it is. And so some people will say, you know, um, uh, Michael, or why are churches so concerned with numbers? And uh, for me, I want you to get this. And for our elders, this is not about numbers. At the end of the day, one pastor said it so well. He said, every number has a name and every name matters to God. 
Every single human being who walks through our doors is of infinite value to God. I don't, don't hear me as crass. I don't care if they attend Village Church long term. My concern is when they come to the doors that we love well because the pain is real and it's palpable. The struggle is very, very challenging. And it is really hard to find a good church, especially when you're jaded and trying to figure out if you can trust again. I can't make anybody trust Village Church, but we do have the control to love them well, to communicate well, to be helpful with them, and to not make them hurt or struggle unnecessarily anymore. Now, as we talk about vision in Village Church, it's really hard to talk about vision apart from your facilities, uh, because so much of what happens at Village Church, even Sunday worship, happens in this room. And so I actually want to take a, a couple minutes and just share with you some of the bottlenecks. There are actually five um, bottlenecks in a facility that actually really negatively impact people when they come here. And uh, so I want to talk through with you, these with you. So like, if, you're, if you are family here, we need to share this vocabulary. And if you're not, you can kind of hear how we process things behind the scenes. So there are five bottlenecks uh, unnecessarily turn people away. Number one is parking. How many of you are grateful for our new, well, almost like one-year-old parking lot, right? Praise God. Guess what? Between the services, especially when our women aren't on a retreat, um, that parking lot is full. We're like out of space. Praise God. Um, Number two is your foyer. (laughs) This is hilarious. Our foyer is one-fifth the size of what any introvert would need to feel remotely comfortable in a church. I'm such an extrovert. I love you guys. I'm like, more people, cram them into the smallest space possible. It's great. No, but, but I get it, you know, and, and there's, it's, it's almost hilarious um, what happens in there. Meeting spaces is the third bottleneck, and uh, if you're not aware, like, no space is sacred in this building. My office, children meet in there, community groups meet in there, people take naps in there. You never know what you're going to find when you walk into my office. Monday morning, people will, like, have meetings set up in my office, and there's, like, crumbs everywhere, and they're like, this guy's a slob. I'm like, no, I had 24 kids all crammed in my office, jumping at my furniture, you know, and, and so, like, but that's kind of the nature of how the building has, has evolved, and so we just kind of got to have, like, no sacred cows as we try to adapt and, and figure that out. But um, there's some challenge there. Um, the next um, one is our children's wing. Sorry, I think I might have skipped our children's. But our children's area, and um, as you know, if you don't care for a kid's area, uh, parents are going to walk in and they're going to believe you don't care for their kids. If you're sloppy with your facilities, they believe you're going to be sloppy with their heart, their mind, and their soul. Um, and finally is the sanctuary, and uh, the children's wing and the sanctuary are actually, they have space. Um, you even look in the room, it's not, we're not busting at the seams here. This isn't one of our primary um, concerns. In fact, just getting into this room for a lot of people is a really frustrating, inhospitable experience, and then getting out can be even worse. Uh, so when we look at just big picture, um, our building is a tool that God has given us to love well, but one of the realities of growing is that our building is always out of date, and it never really quite has really what we need. What I've learned is I think some of the greatest things happen, the greatest innovations, the most creativity, when you're kind of pushed past your limits and you're forced to be together, some really amazing things happen in that context. And uh, so I've loved seeing how villages come together, overcome some of these facilities needs, the amount of camaraderie and collaboration that it requires to run an Awana program on a Monday night with like over 600 people between parents, leaders, and kids that are in community groups that are in the building. Let me tell you, that is a spirit of compromise and love like you've never seen. Uh, the second category I want to talk about in terms of a village church is a campaign we started two years ago. Um, one of the things that you don't hear me do a whole lot from up here is say, give us more money, give us more money. 
Um, our general philosophy has been pretty consistent. Um, we will tell you the needs. If you're a member or committed to tender here, you'll go before the Lord, you'll ask the Spirit what to do, and you'll respond. I just have a very strong loathing for manipulation. And so even some of these things, you may have attended here for a year and probably never heard us talk about this. But every single week, week in and week out, very generous people are giving to this. And I want to share with you an update on what has happened with this and um, what we have done. So there have been four aspects to our Building to Bless the Future campaign. And here's the first one. First one is about our parking lot, which is funded and finished, praise God. The second one is our children's wing revamp, which is completely funded and uh, in process. So by later this fall, we will have a whole plan developed, and God willing, by December, January, February, March in there, um, we will um, uh, basically revamp our entire kids' area so that it is prepared for the future. Um, Number three is a foyer renovation, which we are going back to the drawing board as a group of elders in light of kind of the last two years. And we're going to present to you at a later time an updated vision for how this is going to be addressed. And then number four is an office wing expansion, which is going to be a part of addressing number three as well. Let me tell you why we did this. Uh, The vast majority of you in this room, like 99% of you, you did not give one penny or put one ounce of effort into building this facility. Really faithful men and women did decades ago. And we have the joy to reap what they sowed. They thought to the future. They built something that would bless people they didn't even know. There's like two or three or four people maybe in the church still that were a part of building all this. And they're incredible people. And right now, we're, we found over the last two years especially, we're at a place where we need to play the long game, and we need to think about not just how do we cram the people who are here in, but how do we actually prepare this facility for people we don't even know, people who don't go to church here yet. Um, every Christian is the recipient of those who are faithful before them, whether they stewarded a building or they stewarded the gospel. We have inherited so much, and then our job is to take what we have inherited, that we have been blessed by, and to give it away and to bless the future by preparing for them. And so that's why we did this. And uh, so usually we communicate some of this larger vision. Um, in November, we have what we've called for like 30 years or 40 years, the Harvest Dinner. And uh, we're actually not going to be doing it this year. We're going to have something different that we do maybe in February or March where we just bring the whole church together. We throw a big party. We have a big meal. And we'll come before you and just share an updated vision um, about what that looks like. I know some of you are thinking, uh, Pastor Michael, that is not a wise time to raise funds. I'm not really trying to exploit your end of year giving. If you want to give to the church at the end of year, do it. What we're trying to do is actually be thoughtful, take our time. The Lord has always resourced what he has asked us to do in the right time. And so we're going to take our time with this and be very intentional as we look to the future. Here's the third aspect of Village Church Vision I want you to be aware of. Um, church planting. So um, we planted a church in Carroll Stream. Very excited about them. Our collaboration with them is just tremendous. Craig and I prepare all of our sermons together. It is a true delight. And we've been talking for the last year and a half about planting out west, either on the west or north side of Elgin or West Dundee or that general direction. 
And so uh, over the last probably six to to nine months or so, um, we have known that that time is coming to hire a church planting pastor. Uh, You may not know this, but I have been interviewing church planters for the last year getting ready for this. And so we've just really sensed that this is the time that we need to double down on this. So I'm going to be putting a lot of personal effort into uh, continuing to uh, interview and then ultimately, God willing, hire a church planting pastor who would jump into the Village Church of Bartlett, also work with Village Church. East, really learn our culture, and then get ready to build a team that's going to go uh, the general direction of West. And so the time frame and the person, I wish I had a category for you. I don't totally know it all. I am not a prophet. But here's what I do know. Over the next four, six, two months, I don't know, you will see probably a handful of different men preach. And here are the assumptions I do and don't want you to make. Do not assume that if someone's up here preaching, that they are a prospective church planter. Sometimes we just, we just bring in friends that we love, and we want you to hear their heart and their gift of teaching. Also, don't assume they're not. They very well might be. Uh, but what we're not probably going to do is just tell you, oh, this guy is applying for it, because sometimes they're just trying to get to know the church, trying to get to know the culture. And so it's a great opportunity to have them get to hear them and them get to know us. So you will, again, see various other men in the pulpit, but um, assume and don't assume. And if you would do that, that would be... Great. Question for you to ask of yourself. Uh, I encourage you to go before God and say, Jesus, my body is yours, my home is yours, my life is yours, my ministry is yours, where I go to church is up to you. Jesus, where do you want me to be? And see if the Lord just maybe arouses something in your heart about whether or not being a part of this, whatever this is, is something he's putting on your heart. Here's what I do know. We have about 200 regular attendees at Village Church who live that direction. Now, you ready to shift gears? Yes, Pastor Michael, we're ready. You have like so many questions. I'm sure you do. Uh, I love those. Bring them. You can ask us anytime. But um, I only have, again, two hours left in this sermon, so I need to be really careful. Um, what I want to do now is I want you to ask you to open your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11. And we're going to spend some time um, really equipping you with a discipleship tool that I think could be of incredible value to you and those you are helping to grow spiritually. So for about the last 2,000 years, mature Christians have had a very unusual obsession. I do have a concern that the obsession is waning as the American church becomes lulled and aimless. So like the goal is to kind of rise above the lulledness and the aimlessness that is, is pulling at all of our hearts, mine especially, And Christians, mature Christians, for the last 2,000 years have obsessed over three things. They've obsessed over, first of all, the mind of Christ. What does Jesus think? How does he process? What does he love? What does he believe is true? And so what mature Christians have done is, is they open up the Gospels and they read the words of Christ Unfortunately, when you're becoming lulled and aimless, you read the Gospels through the lens of what do, how, do I, how do I live better or what's one interesting fact I can take away. But the mature disciple is obsessed with finding the mind of Christ. How does he think? How does he process? What's really important to him? And then they read these things, and then we take his ideas, and we put them in our brain, and we say, he is the God of the universe, so his ideas are better than mine. So let's say, hypothetically, you're reading the Bible, and Jesus has an idea or a thought or a belief that's different than yours. Whose is wrong? 
yours. And the mature Christian says, whoops, I'm uh, going to shift that. And then we take the mind of Christ and we think his thoughts, we believe what he believes. So when we read the Bible, we're just obsessed with having his mind. Here's the second obsession of the follower of Christ, the heart of Jesus. They ask, what breaks his heart? What is he passionate about? What does he get angry at? Like when Jesus goes into the temple and he's flipping tables, he actually spends, it appears, a day or two making a cord, all by just making this cord for a day or two so that he can go whip like at the temple out of anger and flip tables. What so angered Jesus, right? That he would spend a day or two making a whip, go into the temple, throw the tables up and start yelling and preaching the Bible at people. Well, I mean, I'll tell you what it is. He gets mad when people proclaim to be religious leaders and sell the gospel for money. So this is why I, I'll apply this to my life. I abhor prosperity teaching. I hate it. I hate it not because it's just an offense to God. I hate it not just because it exploits people, takes advantage of them, ruins them, and makes some dude or woman rich off of their back. I hate it because Jesus hates it, and I want to hate the things Jesus hates. I look at Jesus and he's like, I got no patience for religious people exploiting poor people. Your job is to serve them, not take advantage of them. Makes him furiously angry. I want to be angry at that. Legitimately so. And so we, we, we take the heart of Christ. We read the stories. We see the values that he has. And then here's what we say. I want that to be my heart. And, and, and when there's a discrepancy, we go before God. We say, give me that heart. Give me Jesus's heart. Give me that obsession. I want that to be mine. He's my master. I am an imitator of Jesus's, not just mine, but also his heart. And the third obsession is with the life of Christ. What does he do? How does he love? Here, here's my question that we're going to answer this morning. How does Jesus make disciples? So we watch. We watch what he does. We read meticulously. How did he do that? They're obsessed with imitating Jesus because this is the point. This is what we're all about, being transformed into the image of Jesus. So this last one is going to be our focus for the morning. And we're going to try to figure out what did Jesus do to make disciples? Now, one of the most effective methods of transformation in human history is this. It's Christian discipleship. Uh, This method is single-handedly the greatest method of human transformation. I mean, look at the global reach of the church as it is. Against all odds, against oppression and persecution, this method of discipleship exploded the church globally over the last 2,000 years. Here's what it is. One Christian imitating Jesus in the presence of another intentionally learning to imitate Jesus. Now, pop quiz, there's two common words that come up in this sentence. What are they? Imitate and Jesus. Almost every time I ask you to speak, by the way, the answer is Jesus or the Bible, just so, you're, just so we're aware. Jesus and the Bible. And this is the obsession. So you've got one person who is maybe further along in their walk, and they are looking at Jesus, and they are looking at his mind, they're looking at his heart, and they're looking at his life, and they are doing whatever they can to imitate that, no matter how inconvenient it is for the culture we live in. They're just obsessed. And then there's somebody younger in the faith, and they're watching two things. Number one, they're watching Jesus along with the person discipling them, and the person discipling is saying, watch that. Look at, look at how he thinks. Look at that. Look at his mind. Look at his heart. What does he value? Look at what he does, right? And what they're doing is they're saying, now listen to me. I want you, as I imitate him, imitate me. But if, if you don't see me acting like him, completely ignore me because he's the point. So 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, here's what Paul says. Very simple. 
Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Uh, The Apostle Paul obsessively studied the mind of Christ, the doctrine of Christ, the ideas of Christ, the beliefs of Christ. He was obsessed with his mind. And he looks at the Corinthian church and he says, I'm going to teach you doctrine that came from Jesus. Take this. Take the mind of Christ and make it your mind. The Apostle Paul would say, I've studied the heart of Christ. I've studied his passions and his motivations and his, and, and his convictions. And I'm telling you, I'm going to train you in his passions, his motivations, and, and his convictions. This is what, by the way, the letters of the New Testament are about. They're about giving you the mind and the heart and then number three, the life of Christ. The Apostle Paul is like, listen, I, I just studied this guy's life uh, and, and I want to just show you this is what he did. If he was in this circumstance, here's how he would have gone about this. Okay, so Jesus, I, I get, if I'm talking to him, I get that you want us to be disciples. So how did you do it? Let me, let me say this. I get to a degree, the vision of what a disciple is supposed to look like. The Great Commission drew it out. A mature disciple is, is growing, like Jesus, or going. Jesus was telling everybody he could about the kingdom of God in an appropriate way. He was growing, helping people grow spiritually in himself, growing in wisdom and stature. And he was overcoming sin, Satan, death, hell, I mean, you name it. I see the outcome. Jesus, I see your life. I see what it looks like. How do I get from here to being a disciple who goes and grows and overcomes. Like how, what, it, what is the strategy? And so here's what I want to share with you. I want to share with you, I'm going to make it as easy as possible, five simple ingredients that if we were to boil down everything that Jesus did to make disciples, five ingredients that Jesus brought together, that when these come together, this is what we would call Christian discipleship. This is how Jesus could take 12, some of, we'll call them all, uh, rejected losers and somehow help them form into the most influential men the world has ever known. Uh, there's something incredibly powerful about these five ingredients. And when you look over the ministry of Jesus, he did these five things with his disciples. And here's my question, two of them for you. Number one is, as you disciple people, are you doing these things with them? That's number one. But I'll tell you what for this morning. Push that aside. When you go home or you have lunch today, you can ask that then. Here's the most important question. As a follower, imitator, disciple of Jesus, are you applying these five things personally? Writing five ingredients. We're going to give you an acronym. Uh, an acronym, in case you don't know, is a word that's, that every letter stands for another word. Now you know. Uh, here's the acronym, and I'm going to explain this, and I think it can be profoundly helpful as a tool for your discipleship. The terms of discipleship, truth, experiences, relationships, ministry, and spiritual disciplines. Again, my goal is to equip you for self-evaluation and then to give you a tool that you can actually use with people in your life that you are discipling. Now, the first one here is truth. And by truth, I mean God's word. Now, if you were to say to me, (laughs) Pastor Michael, why didn't you just put the T as a G because it says God's word? Because then it would be germs, or germs, I don't know, like that's even weirder. Um, and, and, and you'll see the last one, actually, uh, the, the S is spiritual disciplines. Like, why didn't you like just make that a D, disciplines? Well, because then it would have been GERD, and that's even weirder. So, um, but terms is easy to remember. Uh, and, and so 
Here's the first one, and here, here's the principle. This is what Jesus did. When he would take these disciples, he had an obsession, and that obsession was getting God's word into their minds. And so getting God's word in you must be one of the top priorities of disciples every single day. The world is luring each one of us with its ideas, and there's a gravitational pull to the, to the world's ideas and worldview. And the word of God, we need it every day. And Jesus was obsessed with making sure that these young men understood the word of God. And he didn't just do it through lecture. He did it in so many various ways on a practical level. I honestly am not very judgy in terms of how you intake God's word. Whether or not you do personal Bible study every day, whether or not you listen to it because you're an audible learner, uh, maybe you're listening to sermons that are not just rooted in self-help, but actually rooted in the Bible, expositing or bringing out the truth of a biblical text, whatever it is. Christians go out of their way every single day, mature Christians who follow Jesus to get God's word in because this is what Jesus would do with his disciples. John 17, 17, when I was a junior, senior in high school, uh, came across this verse, and it just rocked me. And here's what Jesus says. He's praying. He's praying to the Father for not just the 12 disciples, but all of us in the room. He says all those who would come after them. And he says this. Sanctify them. Make them holy. Make them more righteous. Make them more like you. Okay, how does that happen? In the truth. Okay, what's the truth, Jesus? And here's what he says. Your word is truth, that one of the most powerful catalysts for spiritual maturity and spiritual growth is getting God's word in your head every day obsessively. Why? Because the Christian's obsession is with the mind of Christ. Now, after each one of these, I want to put some reflection questions up for you. And uh, on our website, I'll put a PDF of this whole thing so you can go back to it and and read these later. Here are the two questions. How specifically can I more intentionally intake God's word daily. Is this supposed to be just a simple task? No. The motivation of intake of God's word is to get the mind of Jesus. Number two, where specifically am I intentionally neglecting to obey God's word? Are there areas of your life where you know God's word has a demand and you're just like, not yet. But put it aside, I'm not going to deal with that. All right, number two, experiences. How did Jesus make disciples? Let me, let me tell you this. He designed intentional experiences to teach them, to train them, to make them more like himself. I am amazed at how many times he did this. I'll give you just a couple examples so you can see a master discipler in action. Jesus is in the boat, there's a big storm, and he put all of this there, he falls asleep, they all freak out. Like, this was designed on purpose, why? To show them that he has complete power over nature. Jesus just says, peace, and the whole storm calms. Is that an unforgettable experience? You better believe it. Feeding of the 5,000, multiple occasions. Like, Jesus knew what was going to happen, and why did he do this? He puts thousands of people in an unusually awkward position so that he can show his disciples for the rest of their life in unforgettable ways, I am the God who provides. When you are in lack, trust me. Peter's in a boat. He walks on water. He's sinking. Why? Why is Jesus designing this experience for Peter? So that Peter never forgets that without faith, he is dead. 
the triumphal entry when Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, the week that he's going to be killed and crucified. He, he structures this whole series of events. He designs this so that the disciples would know that he's the fulfillment of scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture. The last Passover before his execution, he gathers them all intentionally together to remind them and to teach them intentionally about what this Passover pointed to in the first place, which was him. I just want to say this to you. I don't know if you realize this, but Jesus is intentionally designing experiences for you. He is allowing, ordaining, or permitting things in your life so that you would become more like Jesus. Now, the question is, what are you doing with these things? There's a second aspect of, of experiences, which is redeemed experiences. And this is intentionally bringing the gospel and truth into out-of-the-ordinary experiences. Like, most of life is normal and expected, right? But every once in a while, there are things that happen, whether it's extreme joy and triumph, or whether or not it's extreme heartache and pain. There are these out-of-the-ordinary experiences, and then here's what Jesus would do. He would, he would be with the disciples, and something really crazy would happen, and he would walk into these things, and he would bring the truth of God's word and the gospel into these circumstances, So not only, for example, if I'm discipling somebody, uh, am I creating intentional experiences for them that they might grow and learn? I'm also, as they go through life with me, I'm redeeming the highs and the lows and the the out-of-the-ordinary experiences that are coming our way. And they are all the time. Uh, One of our elders, uh, one Thursday a month, just spends that whole day um, praying, and it's a day of sabbatical and rest and planning and vision and prayer before the Lord. Uh, I have a rhythm in my life, which is every year I spend a week to a week and a half completely alone on the beach of the desert, usually the desert lately, the last couple of years. Nobody, it's like an extrovert's nightmare, by the way, which it is. Um, but I spend an entire week just solitude and praying and going before the Lord and walking and hiking. And I just, just try to get my head and my heart and my hands around the head and the heart and hands of Jesus for my life and my family in this church. These are just rhythms that we inject in. They're intentional experiences that we sometimes have to design for ourselves or walk into. Uh, The Village Church designs intentional experiences for your growth, whether it's retreats or different things like that. We walk into these. And the Christian understands the value of intentional and redeemed experiences. Jesus used them all the time. Here's some questions. Can I list at least one intentional, out-of-the-ordinary experience that I've engaged to grow spiritually in the last six months? If you jumped into anything at all, it might have been a, a one-day conference. It might have been a three-hour like training session. I, I don't know. It could have been a retreat. It could have been something life-giving that was geared at developing the mind, the heart, or the life of Christ in you. Is there something intentionally that you've done? I'm just telling you regularly, uh, I need to uh, design stuff even for my own spiritual growth and my kids and my family uh, because these are things that accelerate their catalyst for spiritual growth. Over the last year, how might I have redeemed out-of-the-ordinary experiences to grow spiritually? All right, number three is relationships. This is the third term of discipleship. Jesus did not just pursue the relationship with the 12. Even within the 12, he had the three... Even within all the followers of Christ on his earthly ministry, there's a group of women, and he brought them together and ministered to them personally. When the disciples would go out, they would go out two by two. Jesus was always bringing people together in spiritual relationship uh, that was edifying, that pointed them to Christ, that helped them become more like Jesus in their mind, in their heart, in their life. Where do you have, here's my question, intentional relationships that point you to Jesus? 
Now, many of you have relationships with Christians because, well, you're part of a church, you're here, so clearly you know at least one person who's a Christian. But just because you have a friendship or relationship with a Christian does not mean it's edifying and pointing you to Jesus. And so who are the friends in your life? Who are the people in your life, the relationships in your life that point you to Jesus? This is essential. I cannot tell you how many Christians I encounter when I say, who is the one person in your life who points you to Jesus the most and they can't come up with a single name? And I don't mean that as condemnation. I just mean that as, all right, let's do something different. Self-reflection questions. Who specifically am I in a spiritual relationship that promotes my spiritual growth? Number two, are there relationships that I currently have that should be more spiritually centered? All right, number four. The fourth term of discipleship. Ministry. Now, I'm going to be super candid and and just honest about my feelings about this this particular one. Everything Jesus did with the disciples had an objective. It had the objective that when he was gone, they would continue to carry on the ministry. Can we agree with that? Okay, we're good. The idea that there is a disciple, follower, imitator of Christ that doesn't have a personal ministry where they are pointing other people to Jesus is a mind-numbing thought for me. Mind-numbing. Now, why, why is it so many American Christians are there? We are aimless. We are lulled. We've bought into consumerism, right? I get it. Now, you may be hearing me say, you need to join a ministry at church. Honestly, like, that's not even my big concern. The idea that a Christian doesn't have a ministry somewhere in their life that demands sacrifice, intentionality, and pouring into someone else is a just mind-numbing thought for me. And, and I would just come back and just say, maybe, just maybe, if that is where you're at, it might be because the aimlessness and the lonely and the consumerism of American Christianity that has just made it okay and doesn't really challenge it has just kind of started to creep in. And I don't even say that out of condemnation. I say it as, let's just, let's just call it what it is. Let's look it in the face. Let's just be honest about it. And if there's a change that needs to be made, then, then, then let some people who love you and know you come alongside of you and help you. But here's the expectation. The expectation is that um, the point of being a disciple of Jesus is to learn to minister. It's to learn to bring your gifts and the things that God is doing in you to bless and to build other people. When we talk about ministry, we talk about three different primary words here, and I want to go forward to this. Number one, we talk about gift-based ministry, meaning it's better to do the things you're good at than the things you're bad at. Can I get an amen on that? And have you ever been served by somebody who's like, ah, whatever. Like, it's like, nah, do the things you're good at, right? Or at least semi-mediocre at. That'd even be better than terrible. Uh, number two is seasonal. Um, we understand that some Honestly, some seasons of ministry, like I'm doing things that I don't love, they just need to be done, right? That's normal. That's okay. That's understandable. And so we understand that, hey, I might jump into this ministry for the next six months, but it's not my forever thing, and that's all right. I think one of the biggest things that we want to see people grow in is faithful ministry, whatever it is, wherever it is, inside the church, outside the church, for a nonprofit, whatever, but that you are faithful to what you are doing. Here's some questions for consideration. What specific ministry am I committed to that has a regular demand on my life? Just let that one linger. Is there a need in front of me that I can meet even though it may be just for a season? 
And if you're in a ministry, if, it's a, if your ministry is a church or organization, would my ministry supervisor say that I am committed to the ministry that I have been serving in? All right, number five, the fifth term of discipleship, spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines, in case you're new to the vocabulary, are simply this. It's uh, spiritual behaviors that we do on a regular basis. They require a little bit of discipline because we're kind of used to just forgetting about them. There are a billion spiritual disciplines. If you read books on this, it's like unending. I'm going to draw you down to two because these are the two that Jesus was obsessed with making sure his disciples did. Uh, Jesus made sure the word of God was in their mind and that they knew how to pray. Pray, 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 pray. Everywhere go, Jesus is praying. And so the disciple says, okay, like these guys, like, teach us how to pray, rabbi, Jesus, master, teach us how to do this. And so he's like, all right, and he shows them what this looks like. And so when disciples read the gospels, they're like, all right, well, I want to watch how Jesus prayed. I want to see his heart. I want to see his mind. I want to see his values. Like there's this like obsession with that. I want to draw you back to these two things. Jesus was obsessed with ensuring that his disciples were daily entrenched in the word and prayer. And so a question for you just to consider. Which discipline am I most consistently applying? What is one change I can make this week to more faithfully engage the word and prayer and worship? Simple questions. Now, as we're getting to your close, I want to talk about cookies. Sound good? Anybody love cookies? Yeah, I'm so hungry. You have no idea. It's lunchtime. I get it. No one's more hungry than me. No one. Always. I, 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 I scounge the, uh, or whatever, I, I search the internet for some time, maybe 20 minutes trying to find the perfect cookie picture. That's my gift to you. You're welcome. Anyone salivating? <laughs> when you make cookies, there are five basic ingredients. Obviously, depending on the cookie, it gets more complicated, whatever. Five basic ingredients. And uh, Matt Souls, uh, he had this, Pastor Matt had this incredible, he's like, guys, wouldn't it be so cool if we had like, we had six different batches of cookies and we had somebody come up and they all had to try each batch, right? And every batch was missing one ingredient, but only one cookie, right, had all the ingredients in it. And I was like, that's actually a genius idea. But my wife's at the retreat and a bunch of women who usually cook her at the retreat. And I'm like, all right, listen, I'm just going to tell you the illustration and you're going to be... Won't be quite as yummy, but if you're discipling somebody and you're talking about the terms of discipleship, maybe go make cookies with them one day and show them, like, this is what your life is like if you don't have the Word of God in your life, right? Like, and then you give them a vision, be like, eat it, right? It'll be great. Um, so the first ingredient is flour. And no flour in a cookie. Here's what you're going to get. Oily goo. Right? You, you put, it's like, oh, you don't even want to touch it. Have you ever made like cookies with too much oil? It's like, it's like, no shape, no substance. It's like, I don't want that. There's a rising agent, baking soda. No rising agent. It is completely flat, and it's really kind of ugly. Like, if you ever looked at a Christian, you're like, listen, you got most of the ingredients, and you're really smart. I don't really want to be anything like you, and you look disgusting. Like, have you ever had that thought? Like, you're not really compelling for me. That's like what a cookie is without a rising agent. Good. Sugar. No sugar. Super bitter. It's like eating Play-Doh. That's about it, right? <laughs> Super disgusting. No sweetness. This is like the believer without love. Like, you don't, you don't have this, like, ah, you know? And, and when you miss these ingredients, like, the whole thing becomes like, ah, quite, not quite what it's supposed to be. Here's one. Fat. No fat. Fat would be like butter, lard, oil, something like that, right? What happens to the cookie? 
I got a baker looking at me right now. She's like literally like, you're going to get it right fueling? Uh, I think so. If I get it wrong, just yell, Lisa, and let me know. I should have had you come up here and do this. What was I thinking? You have no fat. Here's what, here's what happens. It's like a brick. Like, you want to crack your tooth? Go for it. That'll be amazing. You ever, like, talk to somebody? You're like, oh, my heart hurts after talking to you. Like, that's what happens when you have a Christian who's missing some of these ingredients. Uh, the fifth one is a binding agent. Water, eggs, something of the sorts. Holds a cookie together. What happens if you don't have a binding agent? Have you ever tried to, like, stir something without water or liquid in it? Like, oh, here's some flour. And it's like, oh, it's just gooey. It's yucky. It's like, just not the way it's supposed to be. But you give me all five ingredients. That is delicious. You just show people, like, these are not optional things. If you're going to be a disciple, all five of these are going to be part of your discipleship process. And if you're going to make disciples, this gives you a tool and a rubric to say, listen, here are my five, like, here's just the five things that we do when we make disciples. Truth, I'm going to give you intentional experiences, and we're going to redeem experiences. Uh, We're really going to make sure you have the right relationships in your life. We're going to release you from ministry. And doggone it, privately, you're going to have personal worship through prayer. And, and, and through the word of God, like these are just essentials. And when you put them together, you get a delicious cookie. Do you want to be a delicious cookie? Be a disciple of Christ. There we go. You'll never forget that one. All right, three quick so what's. Number one, make one decision today. I get for some of you, the distance between what I just shared and today is really, really, really far away. They're just very long distance. The point of this is not even to condemn you at all or to discourage you. It's to give you something to work toward and to look toward as you follow and imitate the mind, the heart, and the life of Jesus. What is one thing that you can start doing or stop doing to more intentionally follow Jesus and imitate him? Number two, engage your community group this week. Our groups are launching back up, and if you're in a group, I just want to challenge you. Be just really honest. Nobody's perfect at all five, at all. There's no need to prove anything. Like, what are you struggling in, and what, what is the one aspect of this that you just need to lean into as you imitate Jesus? Lastly, would you answer this question honestly? Have I committed to personally imitating Jesus by first trusting him to be my Savior? If you have never trusted in Jesus, there's a couple things that you don't have that you need if you're going to imitate him. Number one is actually the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. Number two is the Holy Spirit who actually empowers all of this, who takes whatever meager efforts we put into things and then exponentially amplifies growth by his spirit. Like, you don't have that. You actually don't have true spiritual unity with the body of Christ, this community that comes alongside of you to help you imitate Christ. And so I just want to ask you, have you personally made a decision to trust in Jesus Christ? Have you made a decision to believe that you are a sinner and to trust that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe in the resurrection that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead? Do you believe these things? Do you believe salvation is not for good people? It's for anybody who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ. If that's where you're at today, I want to just challenge you, would you place your faith in Jesus today? Because the discipleship process and the life that Christ offers you, the mind of Christ, the heart of Christ, and the life of Christ is one of the greatest, joyful, most life-giving lives you can live. And he's offering it to you if you trust in him and follow him. This time what I want to do is I want to invite up Pastor Matt. Uh, Matt is going to lead us in communion uh, this morning. And uh, every week at Village Church, for the most part, we come back and we center our hearts and our minds on Jesus and what he did for us. Pastor Matt.